episode of the World Cup Project, I speak with PSG Talking contributor Louis Jacques about coaching at the World Cup. As a youth coach in France, Louis has a unique perspective on the art of managing. We talk about what it takes to be a good coach and why coaching at the club level and the international game are so very different, which men have done it well and which have not. We also discuss various tactical plans used and their levels of effectiveness. We also get into previews of Belgium and Denmark. It's a jam-packed show. I'm your host, Mark Damon. Join me as we discuss the most difficult job in sports, here on the World Cup Project. Louis Jacques, welcome to the World Cup Project. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on, and today's going to be today's episode is going to be a very interesting topic. We're going to talk about coaching in the World Cup and what that entails and what that means and the kind of people that would want to take on that type of responsibility and that type of pressure. But first, yeah. let's start off just by you introducing yourself to the audience. I'm sure most of our audience have heard you at some point or another on PSG talking, but just. A little background about yourself, why you fell in love with the game, and what you're doing in the game right now. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm 17, so I'm, I'm still still in love with the game at the sort of, sort of youth level. And I guess you know, as as a regular, I sort of I grew up in London, and it's a sort of regular thing of you know after school I play football in the streets or down the park and stuff like that. And um, my dad, growing up in the 80s in Belgium, was a Liverpool fan, so I've become a Liverpool fan thanks to him. The whole culture in football, I've always been intrigued by it. And um, on a personal level, at the moment, I'm doing my exams and I wanted to study history and I've really become interested in football history. And um, I just find football as a cultural phenomenon to be ex- like just not just exciting when you watch the game, but you know when there's not games on or anything, it's still a, a huge world that you can explore. Um, so I moved to Paris about five, six years ago and uh, we were PSG season ticket holders. So I go, I've been to games rather regularly and... Um, that's what got me into some sort of small-time journalism. Uh, last year, I was more active than this year. Last year, I, I posted on a few websites, especially PSG Talk, where I, I, well, I was able to sort of, you know, both develop my talents and also learn a lot about professional football and simultaneously learn a lot about um, coaching because I became, I, well, as most people my age, I, I played football and I was not very good. I was a bit of a very mediocre right back. Um, which meant that I was on the bench a lot and eventually my coaches weren't there for a game and they noticed that because I was on the bench I was a bit vocal they asked me to step in uh, as coach when they were away for a game and they were impressed and uh, I sort of this year took over the job so this year and for most of last year I've been coaching a team of under 18s I passed my UEFA B1 uh, diploma last summer in Denmark and um, yeah I mean I've been uh, I've been rather involved in in that aspect and uh, and that's kind of why that's why I wanted to have you on for this specific topic because I knew that you have this sort of coaching experience and just talk about it first. Let's sort of do a I guess a juxtaposition of the coaching that you're doing on your level. Just talk about that for a minute and sort of the decisions you have to make on a daily basis and the how you put out your lineups, how you um, format your attack, and how you format your defense. Right, okay, well, um, I coach a team of under-18, and under-18 is usually, I say it's the most fun age group, um, because, it, what's it called, when you are coaching under, under 10s, there are different categories, right, under 10s and anything under that, it's really about getting players to understand its team, its teamwork, and that they have to listen to their coaches, 
when you're coaching under 10s to under 14s, there's technical development. And as soon as you start coaching anything above under 14s, under 18s being the, the best age, in my opinion, um, it's really about teaching them how to be you know, a tactical uh, ensemble. So I've been able to learn a lot about tactics, namely because they, they know how to play football. They're not done. They're, they're, they're all you know, 16, 17, 18-year-olds. Um, they, they have the technical ability. And um, they just have to learn how to play uh, under tactical instructions. So that's that's been a challenge for me because, um, you know, tactically speaking, how do you get these players who are playing 90 minutes? Well, I mean, it's our, our, our league does 80 minutes, but, you know, each player playing individually, let's say on average 60 minutes, you have to get them during 60 minutes to know exactly what they're doing at exactly every moment. And then on top of that, put in place certain mechanisms, put in place, uh, you know, certain specific instructions per player, per group, and making sure that on top of all that, it's not too complicated, right? My philosophy as a coach has always been that when you're a player, your your entire game is judged on those three minutes of action where the ball is in your, you know, two square meters, whether you're a defender and it's your attacker who has the ball, or you're an attacker and you have the ball at your feet, your entire performance is judged on those milliseconds of um, decision making, and thus you have to have, and you have to be very clear in your head, knowing what you're doing with the ball. So it's it's really been a, a great challenge, and um, I mean we have the restriction in, I, I say restriction, we have to choose, we have to make sure every player who comes to the game plays at least you know a couple of minutes during the game because it is a very amateur league, but we still are in it to win, and um, I've discovered many. I wouldn't say ego problems, but I've, I, I say I've discovered many difficulties with the game when it comes to you know making sure that everyone is happy with what they're doing and making sure that uh, on a personal level you have to the coach's job becomes sort of making sure that you know all 20 people personally and that you make sure that all 20 people all 20 players are happy and um, it's been tough but I, I absolutely love it and if any, I, just in general if anyone wants to do coaching I can only recommend it. And how many hours a week would you say that you see your players uh, on the average week? Um, on the average week, uh, this is really uh, amateur football. So, I mean, there's the, there's the three hours on the game and around the game. But because it's within the school, this is um, within my school that we do this sort of mini league thing. Um, I see them every day. And, I, and my way of coaching is trying to get everything through. My whole thing, you know, I said earlier about um, uh, having to keep the instructions simple. And that means that you have to make very everything very implicit. You have to make sure that they get this, but more subconsciously than consciously, because then they're thinking about it too much. Because you can't think about instructions too much, otherwise it's ruined for you. So getting to, getting to know players and seeing them individually and, you know, just talking, about, talking to them about fine aspects of their game, very small details, and keeping it simple in little blocks... Uh, has been really helpful. So, I mean, I see them in a football context, let's say three, if I'm lucky, five hours a week, if there's sometimes training a week organized. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, there's there's small interaction hours, and that's really what counts. And I bring that up again, just as juxtaposition to what we're going to be talking about today, which is that sort of high stakes, um, because, well, football is vast, and I think it's sometimes good to sort of explain to people just how... Um, amazingly big world football is from all different types of levels. Again, it's a game, I, I've sometimes described it as a game uh, played by millions and watched by billions. And 
you look at it, and we're going to talk about the highest possible level today. We're going to talk about World Cup coaching, specifically. Yeah. And I want to kind of start off by asking you, as someone who's basically deals with amateur players, it's a very different type of mentality, I would assume. Now, as a as you've watched football over the years and you've seen professional managers, not specifically in the World Cup, but just in, in general, what is your opinion? What is your idea of the perfect sort of manager, man manager, tactical manager, when you look at coaches around the world and you go, these are the type of people that I would like to be as a coach? Do, do you want names or just like what characteristics? Um, either way, if the names fit the characteristics, go for it. Name, names are, are tough. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously going to put other cliches with uh, Marcelo Bielsa and um, Marcel Lenga as well. He's actually been personal inspiration, I find. Um, but character, I think it's easier to sort of dive down to characteristics because for me, coaching is sort of divi- divided up into a few very simple categories. You have a job, you have a certain amount of jobs, and they're rather straightforward. You have to a motivate your players. You have to b um, be be the guy who's aware of everything at every moment, right? The midfielder only has to be aware of what he's doing and what his partner's doing. As the coach, you have to be aware of your midfielders, your attackers, your defenders, your goalkeeper, and the guys on the bench, all at the same time. So you have to be the guy who knows about everything, and you have to be the sort of the support network. So it's it's a sort of it's a combination of three, and um, that's that's you know that's the motivational, the tactical, the technical. There's there's the personal level and there's the collective level and you have to sort of balance the, balance the two whereas the players only have to do the, the personal level because they have to concentrate on themselves. And um, for me, the ideal coach is somebody who finds a good balance, right? Who knows that you have to... Who knows that the football is played by individuals and thus the best way to coach individuals is by, you know, care, taking, into, taking, into, taking into consideration their needs and uh, saying, okay, this player is not feeling good you know, he's not confident or, or whatnot because of this and thus acting on uh, that fact. But also, you know, having the, the foresight to say, OK, this guy is really just being annoying. And for the sake of the group, because we are a team, we are a group of, you know, 20 plus players that he has to be taught a lesson and be told to, you know, shut up or take a, take a bit of a step back. And there are some coaches who are amazing at that, especially the whole idea of having an eye that looks over everyone. Players like Wenger, players like Bielsa have been, uh, players like well, coaches, yeah. um, have always been terrific at that. Especially Arsene Wenger, because Arsene Wenger, you can ask him about any player, right, individual player that he has known in his career, which are hundreds now, and he will tell you about the guy's personal life because he cares. And it's because he cares that what made, that made him such a successful coach, especially in developing players. And then you have the, the polar opposite, right? You have players like Jose Mourinho, who get this short-term success because they are so good on the technical and the tactical level, but can easily create friction with players, right? They, they, they concentrate so much on the collective that I think they forget the, um, the individual. But, you know, of course, they are high-level coaches. So I'm not going to question their ability at also motivating their players. Mourinho is a great man motivator, but that balance is really hard to find. And I, and I, I think that's interesting to talk about because... There's also the idea of being a different type of manager for a different type for different types of jobs. Yeah. And we talk about the vastness of world football. Now, explain as we kind of walk our way through this the difference between 
maybe sort of a manager who is working at a mid-table, maybe mid-table, upper mid-table team with a little bit of history, but it's sort of more, I guess, I, I guess you'd say involved, maybe a little more. Um, yeah, I think you can describe it better than I'm trying to right now. But the difference between sort of the that level of coaching at the highest possible levels of club football and those managers that are just sort of not at that level, but they kind of bounce around mid-table teams. What's the um, difference in those those two categories of coaches? That's a really good question. Um, I'd say that first and foremost, when you're playing, when you when you're manager for a mid-level club, you're going to have more authority because you are the guy who sees the players every day. Um, the board doesn't see the players every day, and all they care about at this point is you know is stable success, right? They they want to be good. But they want, first and foremost, to be stable. If you're splashing loads of cash in the hopes of maybe getting promoted and then you fall short and you are suddenly in loads of debt, that's a really bad plan for a mid-level club. They can't afford to take huge risks. So you want a guy who has this ability to be a, you know, a, a, a beacon, a way forward for everyone, right? He has this common project for everyone, but at the same time is also a collective force. He has to make sure that he has his eye on everyone is cooperating with the board and is, you know, the guy who says who, who's with the players every day. Whereas at a top level club, it becomes institutional. Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, um, Liverpool, Man United, these are clubs that are in themselves institutions. They have so much history behind them that a single manager is quite frankly, you know, just a a morsel of their history. Even Zinedine Zidane, who was such a big part of Real Madrid history as a player and now as a manager, is only just a fragment of Real Madrid history. Um, that makes their jobs really hard in the aspect that they have less control over the day-to-day -day running of the club. They, they can't choose anything about finances, pre-season, about stuff like that, because that's all down to the sponsors, down to the chairman. They have less of a say in transfers, and they have a more specific job when it comes to day-to-day -day coaching. That, of course, makes it easier with the players on an individual level because while, let's say, a, the manager of Sheffield Wednesday has to uh, you know, do more of the accountant's job than Jupp Heinekes does to at Bayern Munich, um, which means that Jupp Heinekes gets more face time with the players, it means that he, has, he doesn't know as much what's going on with the club. So there is a balance, and each has their pros and cons, and you know, it requires a very patient and very very talented manager to be a top level manager because you have to you know trust your board but also have this whole you know common project and that's that's what makes it hard it's a lot more you know it, it, of course it goes club to club but you know it's, it's a lot more demanding um what i find what i discovered recently though and i'll you let me just uh, go on to this is the difference between um youth managers and um professional managers when you're talking about um inside a club right you have the coaches for the under-19s, the under-17s, and et cetera, et cetera. And um, what's really interesting about that is um, you may have clubs like this. Uh, I think it was yesterday, Arsenal won the PL2, something like that. You may have clubs who have lots of success at a youth level. And then you have clubs who don't really have as much success at a youth level, you know, when it comes to league tables and whatnot. Um, but still have really, uh, still really good at developing youth players. Like Man United, their youth team is absolute trash. But they have a respectable amount of youth players coming into the first team. Um, and this is because the, I, I never really thought about this until I um, I went to Denmark uh, last summer to talk to and interview two um, players for FC Midtjylland. 
um, who explained who, who both went through the youth academy and into the first team, and explained that for both clubs and for national teams, when you're at a youth level, they don't care about winning. They care about you developing you as an as a uh, individual player because winning trophies for under nineteen teams and under seventeen teams is cool. You can put it in the trophy cabinet, but nobody really cares because the academy only exists to cater for the individual players, right? Whereas the pro team, as soon as you step into the pro team, and this was um, the right back who I interviewed, uh, who now plays for Ajax, he said that the day he stepped, the day he was told to go to the pro team, he could immediately notice the difference, which was. You will be dropped into the under-19s if you're not good enough because the pro team is all about winning. This, you know, the, the, the academy is all about the players. The pro team is all about the team. The team is an institution and it has to win trophies, whereas the academy is all about developing players. And doing the, the transition from, coach, from youth team coach to first team coach is a lot harder than people imagine because when Zinedine Zidane, for example, became Real Madrid coach after he was the coach for Castilla, um, he had to go, he had to undergo that transition. He'd never been a coach of a team that demanded uh, winning for the sake of winning. It was only winning for the sake of developing good players, and that's something that I, I don't think people have realised uh, so much. And I think I find, I find it really interesting personally. Yeah, and that's it's a good detour to take because it gives you just an, an idea of sort of, and we'll get to this when we talk about the national teams, the sort of the layers of how a national team functions, and it sort of functions in that similar way. That a that a club team does, and the fact that it has its different levels and its different levels of coaching. But let me just do a quick little detour because you kind of brought up brought it up a little bit in the transition between being a mid-table manager and a um, manager in a major club. And I usually in these specials don't want to really bring PSG into it, but I think Unai Emery is a very good example of sort of the pratfalls of that type of transition and just quickly why do you think it didn't work Unai Emery going from sort of an upper mid-table Sevilla team that had its successes had its European successes but when he gets to the big time club it just doesn't work at that level he won a bunch he's won a bunch of things domestically but just European wise it's just not it's somewhat been a disaster so I think it's just a good way to make that point so just if you want to just quickly go on that you really right to bring it up because Unai Emery is actually the perfect example of this. I am um, in his first year, right? I, I, I was I was always on the PSG podcast, PSG Talk podcast, saying we have to give him time, but I still think it's the wrong appointment. I don't see this succeeding, and um, it was the wrong appointment from the start because, mainly because Unai Emery at Sevilla had success because the club worked in a way where if you if you see let's say the club as a pyramid structure, right? you have the board and the manager and the team all on the same level at Sevilla. Or maybe you know, the team a little bit underneath. But the board and manager are on the same level. At PSG, the, the board is, is so much higher up, hierarchically, than the manager. Where it, to a point where Unai Emery, you know, he, he even complained about the director of football when it was, um, was, it, when it was Patrick Clovert. And um, you, you have this, this disjunction between the two which is really hard to find a balance in, in professional football. Professional clubs only work really well when there is a good balance between, a good you know ego balance between the manager and the, the board of directors. It didn't work at PSG. Um, he just didn't have enough authority to walk into that boardroom and say, this is how I want to run this club. And nor did he have the, you know, the brains to work out compromises with them. So 
he's a good guy and he's a good he's a good coach. He's a very good coach. He's great to motivate and he's fantastic tactically. But PSG wasn't right, probably wasn't the right time for him. He maybe could have learned this sort of stuff, but it wasn't the right time for him because it just wasn't, you know, he, he just wasn't ready for that. Yeah, and I, and I would agree with that. And I've always been a defender of him as a person and somewhat as a coach. It's just sometimes the job just doesn't work for the person. And that's, that's, um, that's just life in general. And, I mean, we'll see what Tomas Tuchel's able to do. I don't know if you have any thoughts on just how he's going to be as a manager for PSG or if you see sort of the same issue that Emery faced when he came in. Um, I'd say there's a – if you see it like a, as a little scale, right, from the – from the docile manager like uh, Unai Emery, who was, you know, who, who didn't communicate with the board and couldn't stand up to the board, to the opposite being um, Laurent Blanc, who was, you know, who was so much in bed with the board that he never stood up to them. He just did exactly what they told him, and he never played any adventurous football. He never really took any risks. I think Thomas Tuchel will be the separation from both of them. He's a guy who, you know, he does he doesn't. I don't want to say he doesn't care for the PSG institution. He, he, if he's going to the club, then of course he cares about the PSG institution. But he'll be coming to the club and he'll essentially be saying, right, you have hired me to do a job. Let me do my job. I'm, I'm not going to let you guys stand in the way. If you, if you stand in my way, I will walk away. That's something that Unai Emery didn't really have the moral backbone to do. And that's something I think that Thomas Tuchel does. And if the board gets behind him on that, then it'll be a successful partnership. Yeah, I agree with you about that 100%, by the way. I, I think, and I think to a certain degree, and we'll get off this in a second, but I think that the board, I think, really has, if they're going to hire Tuchel, I think it's sort of an idea to actually let him do his job and sort of step above sort of Nasser in that way. Because I think they see a money, <clears throat> they see right now PSG kind of throwing um, good money after bad. And, you know, if you're a board and you're a major board, you kind of want to make yourself the good guy in this sense. Hire someone that can do that dirty work. And I see Tuchel as a guy who, especially if it's the main, um, I guess the Emir of Qatar, hiring him over sort of Kalifi's wishes, I think you can sort of see that friction. But also I think Tuchel's going to be in a better position than uh, some of his predecessors. But let's move on to the World Cup and specifically World Cup managing. And first, let's kind of talk about the difference, and this is sort of a broad topic, but I'll let you kind of go where you want with it. The main difference between the structures of a national team and the structures of a club team, and why they're different and why, in some ways, they're similar. Okay, that's, um, that's, a, good, that's a really good place to start. Um, you, you pointed this out earlier, how... Um, the, the manager of a national team gets way less face time with his players than the manager of a club team. There's, I don't remember, apart from Joachim Lowe, who's just been coach of Germany for so long that he's seen his players enough to become personal with them, I don't remember a national team coach just being personal with his players because they see each other so little. They, it, 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 it's a really, really tough job. Um, people, you know, national team managers get a lot of slack and people think it's a really easy job, perhaps, because they only have so few games to do and they only have so few teams to prepare. But that makes it hard. It's really, you know, if, if the whole, if we see winning as finding a needle in a haystack, right, and finding the right passage to it, um, then then winning at, the, winning at the national team level is just a bigger haystack because you have more players to choose from. You have uh, more tactical combinations. 
and you have less time to get it right in. You can't experiment at all. You don't have the liberty of a um, club team. Um, so on a personal level, you don't get to develop players individually. That's just... That's a, I find it a shame. I find it a bit of a shame because there have been, there have been some really good national team coaches plus players combination. But the thing is, right, if coaches develop players individually, um, then it's only club coaches who can really do it. They have so much training time with the players that they can teach them new techniques and you know tell them how to be a better player. And I just don't think national team coaches have the time to, to be able to do that, especially with the amount of players they have to, they have to go through. Um, of course, this whole broader range of a job makes it tougher but it also makes it a lot more interesting as as long as a coach is up for the job then um, they can you know as on a, on a personal level as a coach you can find it really interesting because now you have so many more options and if you have a project right if you are dead set on what you want to do and you now have you know let's say a hundred if you're the England manager you have a hundred players to choose from you can pick your perfect 23 and you can do if you want to play 3-3-3-1 then do it then, then find the players who fit that. At a club level, you have to adapt around the players you have. On a national team level, you have to adapt the players around the around the project you have. And you know that that, that can also be that can make for really interesting um, teams and combinations. Lots of the time, it doesn't work. That's the problem with uh, national team coaching. Lots of the time, the, the the time frame is too short to train players into new te- new systems, um, to get egos in check, and to choose the right players all at the same time. And then, you know, get them to work together for a month before saying goodbye and seeing them only four months later. Um, it makes it really tough. But if you can get it right, then it can be a, an amazing experience. And talk about sort of, in your mind, the different characteristics that you would want your national team coach to have as opposed to a club team coach to have. Are they different types of managers, just fundamentally and philosophically? Or... Because and we'll talk about the sort of the types of managers that take these jobs, mm-hmm. but sort of what you're looking for in a national team coach, and what are those characteristics different than the ones that you spelled out at the beginning of this show when you were talking about coaching in general, maybe at a club level? I say it's really it's it's there are two there are two different types of coaches you want at a club level. You want a guy who is uh, <laughs> who's very down to earth, who's focused on things. But whose main priority is developing players, developing individuals. Football is all about the individual players, right? And you, as a coach, you have to respect that your job is helping these young men become better at what they're doing. Um, that's a, that's only at the club level. Because on the national team level, you just can't do that. I want, I'd say on the national team level, as a player, or as a fan as well, you want a coach who's bipolar. You want a coach who, in qualifying season... Um, has the audacity to experiment enough, but also has the, the, the foresight to be able to know what's too much and to be able to you know keep your players' egos in check and be this moral figure of authority. Um, but bipolar in the measure that when you get to a tournament, this guy has to be crazy. Play, tournament coaches cannot be um, you know fickle man, man managers. They don't work at tournaments. They they work in long-term 38 season, 38 game seasons. They don't work at World Cups because World Cups, you're judged on what? Come on, seven games. It's seven games if you if you as if you win it. That that's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Um, so we can get onto that later, but just on a managerial level, right? You have to be a guy who, as soon as it gets to competition season, you have to be absolutely crazy. 
on the motivational level, you have to have your players pumped up every single minute of the day for those two months. Um, and that, that takes a guy who is, who is very special, of course. So finding a guy who is good in qualification and good at the tournament is difficult because they has to be, as I mentioned, you know, rather bipolar, he has to be good at both jobs. And you know, surrounding yourself with a good coaching entourage is a very good way of doing that. Keeping consistency at you know in the qualifying level and then being very good at the um, competition level. But you know, you really want to you really want a coach who's very different from a club level coach. Yeah, and a lot of these guys, the longevity. Just in, I'm looking at just sort of the list of managers who right now are currently coaching European and South American national teams. Obviously, Joachim Lowe is um, the longest tenured European manager of 11 years, about 11 and a half years. Right. In South America, you have, um, you have, sorry, hold on, you have Oscar Tabaris, who's been there for 12 years, and again, the next closest manager is Didier Deschamps, and he's been there for five years. Right. So it almost seems like you get this sort of, <clears throat> it's sort of a weird thing. You kind of get more job security sort of with the less expectations that you have. For example, Andorra's manager, Coldo, has been around for eight years. Luxembourg's manager, Luke Holtz, he's been around for seven years. Yeah. You know, Michael O'Neill of Northern Ireland, he's been around for six years. But you go to these bigger European clubs, there's that turnover. And it's, you know, you win, you succeed in that World Cup or you succeed in that European competition or you're gone. If you struggle a couple of games in European qualifying or in South American qualifying, you're gone. Like, there is no... Yeah. Mid-level manager, top-level manager thing. If you, talk, you were talking about Luxembourg <laughs> and Andorra and stuff like that. They, they, they know they're not going to win any competitions. They want a guy who is able to develop their players individually, of course, uh, which resembles a club manager level, but especially who, who makes their country a bit proud. We can win a game from time to time, and that's what consistency is all about, and that's why it resembles a sort of mid-level manager thing. They want a consistent manager, whereas the top-level teams, they want a, a manager that wins. But it is interesting, though, if you think about it, because you look at Argentina right now. Jorge Sampali's been on the job less than a year. And you're going to have a guy who's been in there who has a lot of experience but has been at that job for less than a year now with those players, and you're bringing him into this high-pressure situation. It just seems sort of odd. Like, it doesn't seem like there's any other job in the world that would work like that, where it's like, this is the most important thing we do as a country sports wise in every four years. And we're just going to bring this guy on and we're going to give him 300 days and he's going to go in and he's going to try to win the world cup. It, it doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't make yeah, that much sense. It's really tough. You need to, it's, it's also a bit about consistency. Joachim Löw is successful because the whole German, you know, the whole German football project was started in, in the, the mid 2000s, in the early 2000s, where they developed um, club, when they developed academic football and they developed um, manager training and stuff like that. That was really well done from Germany, and they had this whole idea of you know consistency breeds results. Thus, we're going to hire a national team coach who will be consistent, which is what Joachim Löw did. Um, he adapted to new players, of course. He adapted to you know the, the coming and going of Podolski and the, the coming of Timo Werner now, um, and that's really interesting. But um, 
it's it's it is a, it is to a large degree about consistency. I will, however, point out that somebody I think it was last year somebody pointed out to me the national team results can be very deceptive. If you think about um, club level football, right? Club level football is, is very much um, on about form. Uh, if we take PSG, uh, I remember last season. Last season in January 2017. Do you remember that stretch of games where they lost two and then they drew two and they won one, and it was abysmal football. I think yeah, I think that was December. That was the um, that was the Montpellier Gingham yeah, um, exactly. stretch. Yeah, it was a terrible stretch of games, and that's all about form because they picked up form later and they had some uh, better form early in the season. If you think about national team football now, they only play every three months. So if you see, let's say, for, if you see a, a graph chart, right? Let's just imagine a mathematical graph chart where it's going up and down. And four, and that, that just represents the form of the team, you know, going up being good, going down being bad. Um, for a club level, you just have this one chart, and that's just how they're doing through the season. But in the national team level, all you have is these little chunks of form. They could be doing really, really well for their level, just because, coincidentally, their on-form moments are the moments where there's national team football every three months. And... That could, be, that could be down to a good man-motivating manager, a guy who knows exactly what his project is and how to get the best out of his players. Uh, that could be down to a manager who is very consistent, like Joachim Lu. So you need either or, but you also need a bit of a mix of both, especially when it comes to tournaments. Yeah, and I just want to talk about Joachim Lo, uh quickly more because he seems like, just again, one of those guys who has survived... Um, he replaced Jurgen Klinsmann after the 20, uh, 2006 World Cup. He's been, as you talk about consistency, but what is it about him, the person, that gives him the ability to sort of ride through different changes in team, different changes in philosophies, and sort of be that kind of guy who fits with his team depending on what his team needs? Because I think that is what his strength is, is that... He's not one of those coaches, and you look at his coaching history beforehand, he's not coaching at, like, Dortmund or Bayern Munich or any anything like that. Like, his job before he went as an assistant to, for Germany was Austria Wien. Like, this is not a guy that was coaching at the highest levels of the game. But he's one of the best national team coaches in history because of his longevity and what he's been able to do with a really powerful team in Germany. So just, again, talk about that and what separates him from everybody else right now. Joachim Löw has a... This, this, is, this is also very specific to Germans. Germans are respectful folk, and their players are... Their players very often learn to keep their egos in check. Um, but he has a very... He has a great moral authority. The German football project is a very smart one. The whole, you know... The, the, the whole football project they, they started... Um, and is very smart on the on the biggest stage being their national team in the aspect where um, they have they, they put so much faith in Joachim Loeb. They, they they said, All right, we've chosen the right guy, we we think this is the right guy. They made him assistant manager to, you know, help ease the transition. And they know that it, that you know, if you if you give him enough time with the players, he'll get to know all the right players, he'll watch the Bundesliga enough to know all the young players. And that giving him time and the backing of the um, DFB um, gives him a moral authority over players that can can allow him to say, right, if you don't respect my instructions, if you don't respect the calm that I want in the dressing room, 
then you're being dropped. End of story. He can see that. I mean, he has the ability and the squad depth to be able to say that to someone like Mirza Özil. Özil has always been terrific for Germany because he respects exactly what Joachim Löw says every single day. And um, I say Joachim Löw's special talent is harnessing this this moral authority he has, saying, knowing that, being aware that you know the players will do what he says, and being you know being responsible with his ability, saying you know being somewhat restrained because he has the amount. He, I mean, his squad depth is ridiculous. He could, if he wanted to, play friendlies in a three-four-three. Um, make ten substitutions and you know really screw around a lot, but he doesn't. He 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 sticks to the same lineup nearly every single international game, whether it be friendly, qualifier, or World Cup, because he knows that consistency is key for him. So he's a very you know he's a very forward seeing coach, and I, I respect him especially for that. And I think no matter what Germany does in this 2018 World Cup, I think their sort of masterpiece will always be the seven one against Brazil. Yes. And I really want to talk about that game specifically because it sort of highlights the difference between a national team that looked like they'd been playing together for five, six years versus a team that looked like it just sort of, you know, kind of got off the buses and met each other for the first time that day. And it's and it's a fact that those two teams had an equal, basically an equal amount of prep time to get ready for that game. Now, taking all of the sort of the pressure that the Brazilians had and the fact that they didn't have Neymar, whatever, whatever, put that aside for now. But just how can you get a national team, again, of players who on average are together for about a month out of the year in non-World Cup years and maybe two months together in World Cup years, how do you get a team to just play that um, together? I think it's just one of the most fascinating examples of a team that was coached to perfection in a way that made it look like, again, that they were this, you know, amazing club team. Like if that team went into a club competition like the Champions League, you could see them winning it, like pretty easily see them winning it. And you don't normally say that about national teams. Um, this is where I want. I mean, I was going. To, I was. I was planning on someone just talking about what what what's important in a World Cup, and I, I, this is basically um, this is basically how I see it. Right, managing the World Cup. I said earlier is seven games. You have to nail seven games on the head. Every single game has to be a clinic in football tactics. Right, Joachim Löw knew this against Brazil. He 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 showed that he was really not only able but extremely able to, to put on a clinic in attacking football and just in football in general um, but I think Joachim Löw demonstrated best at the World Cup in 2014 what um, being good at a World Cup is all about um, he showed that the World Cup is about you know before when you're on the plane to Brazil or in this case on the plane to Russia every single player has to know in their minds right what is my job at this World Cup um, and they have to know, I have seven games to do my job, the best I've ever done it in my life. And there's no excuses. If I fuck up, there's no second game to catch up because we'll be out of the competition. And they know that there are guys on the bench who will be willing, not only willing, but able and willing, to replace them if they're doing a bad job. So keeping your players motivated enough, knowing that this is about your country, and this is something that really does matter a lot to millions of people, 
uh, is something Joachim Löw did phenomenally. I think there was some a certain player. I think it was either Podolski or um, or Müller who wrote about um, the pre the pre match team speak, team uh, team talks. He wasn't a, a man of you know fire and fury and motivating the guys by shouting at them, saying like do it for your families. He was extremely calm, and he helped them realize. Look, you guys are adults. You may be young adults because you know they're all you know under the age of thirty. Um, but you guys are smart enough to know that if it is to be, it is up to them. If you know everything is in their hands, it's their job to realize the importance of it. It's only his job to place that idea in their head. It's his job to plant the seed, and then you know plant the right seed. Tactically speaking, he has to you know choose the right formation and choose the right lineup and the right players and you know, put in place the right mechanisms, etc., etc. But football being so much about luck, the World Cup is all about the individual player being motivated enough to say to themselves, <laughs> I have seven games to get it perfectly. And there are some World Cups that doesn't happen. Um, quite the front, I think France 2010 is the best example. They brought in Raymond Dominique because they said to themselves, right, this guy has the authority because he won the World Cup. It doesn't work that way. Having authority is about having players trust you, and um, it, lots of the players made it, made it seem like he after the after the World Cup they just explained that look this guy didn't have a project, this guy was essentially taking it game by game, which works in club competition, and of course you have you know you have to take sport you know you have to you have to concentrate on every game as in, as importantly as the last, but you have to have at the World Cup this overlying sense of importance. And this overlying sense of self-confidence, saying to yourselves, I can do this. Um, and if you don't do that, it won't work. The best example for me has always been um, Belgium at the, at the Euro 2016. We, we, we flopped because um, just Mark Wilmot is not – he's a great guy. He's a nice guy. But he's not intelligent enough to, have, to you know, uh, make it show in every single player's head that what, what it's about, how important it is, mm. and – how important it is that they perform to their maximum. And then on top of that, you know, planting the right seed. So that, that's why Joachim Lewis is great. He's a very calm man and he respects his players and ensures that they respect him. And I also wanted to sort of bring up this idea that I think, that, again, to me, winning the World Cup is one of the hardest things to do. Like, yeah. it's just... Because there's only been about six, seven national teams that have ever done it. It's not like, you know, we're running around and there's Belgium's won the World Cup and, you know, Portugal's won the World Cup. No, there's really a select few teams yeah. in the history of a basically now an 80, almost 90-year-old competition who have ever won the thing. And I chalk some of that up to the fact that some of these nations just have a better footballing culture and they just have the depth of talent. Now, if we can just go into Belgium for a second, and then we'll bring it back into the coaching, just because I, I wanted to also bring you on to talk about Belgium and Denmark, and I guess this would be a good time to sneak a, a little bit of a Belgium preview in there. Yes. Um, I think, this is my opinion, 1 through 12 or 13, I think they have nearly as much talent as anybody. I think their issue is again, I think they don't have the depth that some of these other teams do, which I think plays to your idea that the starting lineups need to be pushed. They need to have that pressure to perform or they're going to see the bench. I don't see Kevin De Bruyne ever being benched. I don't see Eden Hazard ever being benched. I don't see Vincent Company ever being benched. And 
I mean, you can talk to this better than I can, but for a team that has a lot of talent, I think, again, a lot of good top-flight talent that play in the best leagues and play in the uh, play on the best teams, I, I feel like you'd think at some point they would put it together maybe as a unit, but it just really hasn't happened. Um, I'd say that the, the Belgium is the, best, is the best example of choosing the wrong coach. Roberto Martinez was, was also a terrible replacement for... <laughs> I, I, I rue the day we, we selected uh, Roberto Martinez. It was ridiculous. But um, Mark Vilmos was, obvious, was the worst example of a bad coach. He was great, phenomenal. At, um, he's the perfect coach you want for qualifying for a World Cup for the Euros. He can... He played... I think he played the exact same line. He played the same 16 players for basically all of our Euro 2016 campaign, apart from the little games against Andorra and stuff. He, he knew how to keep it consistent enough to win games. And um, Roberto Martinez being the exact opposite. He's been experimenting so much, it hurts my eyes. Seeing Yannick Correa Carrasco at left wing back was was a joke. Um, but no, no, why I think, why I think the overlying factor here is um, you have to, with teams like Belgium, you I think we had the depth at the, at, the, at the Euros, Euros was the, was the competition where we had the depth to be able to go all the way. Um, but we, what we lacked was a manager who could tell the players, uh, who, who had the moral authority to tell the players, right, you said you said Kevin De Bruyne, right? Yeah. On the bench, there was Leander Dendonka, who plays a similar role to Kevin De Bruyne. Had you put him on, uh, you could essentially say to Kevin De Bruyne, right, if you don't do your job the best you have ever done it in your life, I will sub you off. If you get subbed off, we will lose. And why is that? That's because a clearly inferior player to you is playing you know, a clearly inferior level. Now look, it's your job to step up and to ensure that we will win. Otherwise, even if you're not playing, it's your fault because you haven't been up to that level. We had got, Mark Vilmos didn't understand this concept. He just... I, 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 I posted many times that... um. I was convinced that Mark Bilmot was selecting our lineup off uh, FIFA ratings because he just kept on putting Romelu Lukaku on, even though he did absolutely nothing. He did zero. Absolute, it was it was absolutely ridiculous. Our game against uh, Hungary, we won four 0 in the round of sixteen. Um, I think the last three goals were in the last ten minutes, and um, it was only because we suddenly sub surprise surprise we sub off Romelu Lukaku. For a player like Michi Batshuayi, who was really bursting onto the scene at this point, he was only just getting transferred to Chelsea, and he was very talented, very quick. Um, we, we subbed on Michi Batshuayi, and surprise, surprise, he worked a lot better with uh, Eden Hazard, because he would be an outlet for Eden Hazard to move with the ball, whereas Romelu Lukaku would stick to his defender, and was used to the Everton play, style of play, which was maybe a through ball will come, and they, they will latch onto it. That's not how Belgium played. Um, so you need to have this this tactical know-how of getting all these great players to fit together, which I think there was a way of doing. You could have played Belgium in a four-three-three with you know um, with Moussa Dembele, um, Kevin De Bruyne, and Rajan Nangolan in midfield, and then played a good attacking lineup. You know, with there are so many options in attack. I mean, Eden Hazard, Michi Batshuayi, and um, Dries Mertens was was probably the best idea at the Euros. Did we ever see that lineup? No, because he just essentially chose the best players possible. Um, not the best for the team, but the best just individual players in an, in an individual lineup. And knowing how to, A, motivate your players, and B, uh, then, you know, tactically 
choose how to get the best out of them is a tough job, of course, but we did it really badly. Um, I think there was a really good uh, there was a really good idea for this. The whole you know choosing the best players in every position won't work. Um, there was you know the NFL draft is coming up soon, and this may be a completely different sport. But the idea that I think it was Pat Shermer who brought up that the Giants will only pick uh, the best player there, there there is in the draft when it comes to their pick. And then you have um, whoever's running Green Bay, I completely forgot who their general manager is. But he said, right, no, we're going to pick who we want when it comes to our pick. There are two different philosophies here. There is picking the best player available, and there is picking the best player suited to your needs. And tactically speaking, when we come back to football, you know, Vilmos did did choice A. He just chose the best players possible, and that didn't work because there was no team. There were just individual players. Yeah. And I think in just your NFL example, and... um... I'm a Giants fan, so I, I, I cringe when I hear best, uh, best player available because that's been the philosophy for the last 20, 20 years with the Giants. So, I, I, yeah, but I, I, when you're up in the top five, you're, you're talking about, you know, you're talking about really, really good players. You really, it's really hard to screw up a top five pick. I mean, teams do it, but it's really hard. I think, and we talk about Belgium specifically. And we talk about that best sort of, the best sort of 16. And I think that comes down to the pressure. And not to bring it back to Unai Emery, but I think to a degree this year, I feel like Unai Emery, every week sort of, I think he felt like he was coaching for his job. So I think you saw him, um, at least at the beginning of the year, not ever really experiment with more of the younger players. You never saw Nkunku, you never saw... Um, you never saw any of those sort of younger players in that lineup. You saw pretty much the same lineup every week. And that was, I think, again, because of the pressure that he felt he was under. So you look at Belgium, you have all this talent. And I just think psychologically, some of these coaches will say, you know, if I don't win, I'm not going to be here to collect this nice paycheck anymore. So... Let me put the best team out there, and if I put the best team out there and we lose, I can at least go to the people above me and say, "Hey, I put the best players out there. They're the ones that didn't go. They didn't perform. What am I supposed to do about that?" As opposed to sort of experimenting with what you're saying, which is playing some of the younger players, playing people, you know, playing slightly different formations. I think there's a balance there, and I think when you're playing I, I, just in a high-stakes, high-pressure job, I think you go the conservative route more times than not. There's more coaches that will just sort of be caretakers and say, let me keep everybody happy, let me get the start, the best players in, and if I lose, they can't blame it on me. I mean, they will anyway, but... They can't blame it on me as much because, hey, I put the best players out there. And I think... I think that's the problem, right? Yeah. Because I remember watching Belgian TV after we lost to Italy at the Euros. And there was this guy who phrased it perfectly, which was Romelu Lukaku played 90 minutes against Italy. We lost 2-0. Romelu Lukaku had, like, one shot on target. And it was terrible, you know. And somebody pointed... One of the pundits said, is Romelu Lukaku better than Michi Batshuayi? Yes. Would we have won the game if Batshuayi was playing? Yes, you have to make the right choice. That doesn't always mean choosing the best player. And, and you know, if, if, if Lukaku complains about the, after the game that he wasn't selected, then that's too bad for him. 
he should care about the team. If 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 Wilmot is scared about backlash from individual players, then I'm sorry, then you're not made to coach a team that wants to win the Euros. You have to have the moral backbone to say no. Oh yeah, and I don't even and that and I and I agree with you in that sense. It's just I I sometimes tend to look at it and go, okay, what is this person thinking? Whether it's right or wrong, it's what is this person thinking? And why would they make the decision that they make? And more times than not, what I've found is they're making the conservative decision because it's an easier decision to make. And they feel like the pressure is off them a little bit more. And those are the types of people that probably shouldn't be national team managers. If you can't embrace that pressure, if you can't take that responsibility, there's probably other lines of work or other, you know, lower level uh, levels of football that you can manage in rather than sort of being put into this spotlight. And just to kind of give a uh, capper on Belgium here before we go back into coaching a little bit, their group this year is Panama, Tunisia, and England. Now, Panama can be tricky, but Belgium should really qualify through that group. That shouldn't be that much of a problem. We should win every game. End yeah, I think they should win every game. I, I'm not, I don't think this England team is very good. I, I think, again, it's one of those where, and I'll talk to um, our, uh, our friend uh, Matt Gooding about uh, the three lines on an upcoming show. I don't. I'm not convinced by this England team at all. I I don't think they're very good at all. I think they have some good young talent. I I think they have a good youth system that's starting to build, but I think at this moment it's just they're not they're not in that category yet. But if they get through, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say England is a perfect example of of the players having the wrong mentality. England players show up to work, whereas the uh, the uh, polar opposite being Uruguay. Uruguay players show up for their lives. There is a, there is just, there is just two different worlds here. Yeah. I think England won't win the World Cup until they realize how important it is. And yes, and then they start getting the bad press, and it, it goes, it, it it sort of feeds into itself. But yeah. let's just talk about Belgium gets through that group. They theoretically they win Group H, which means they would get the Group G. I'm sorry, which means they would get the runner-up of Group H, which would probably be either Senegal or Colombia or Poland. All I tough games. I say Colombia. Yeah, you think you think Colombia finishes second in that group? Yeah. Who finishes first? Poland. Eh, that's a good group though. I really do. I like I like that Senegal team. If you look at that Senegal team attack, I'm I'm not sure it can function together, but. They got a whole hell of a lot of good young players on that on that front line of attack. But in general, what's the ceiling for this Belgium team in your in your mind? What's the ceiling for where they can go in this competition? Our theoretical ceiling is winning the competition. Realistically, I'm saying quarterfinals. I, I would agree with you there. I'm I'm pointing this out because my um my birthday is the day of the World Cup final. Yeah. And um, I, I point. I said this to one of my mates. I'll be, you know, I'll be on holiday in Italy, and I'll be able to watch this in a bar and, you know, have a great time. And someone said, "Well, what if it's really sad if Belgium win- if Belgium loses the World Cup final?" I said, "No, because we won't get that far." Um, <laughs> I, I don't see that happening. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like them though. I I've always I I I think they're again. I think their talent is there. It's just again, it's tough to put it together. 
and it it shows you sort of how hard it is, even with talented players, because at this level, every, at this high enough level, everyone's talented, and you have six or seven teams that I think have a theoretical chance of winning it. I'd say there's three or four who have an actual chance, depending on what you think of France, um, or depending on what you think of Argentina. But depending, I I would say it's Germany, um, Brazil. Spain and France, probably in that order. Yeah, okay, I see the same. I I, I flipped I flipped uh, Germany and Brazil in my personal yeah uh, predictions. Yeah, and I think either way you're I think either way you can kind of see Germany and Brazil as the two favorites. But let's go into something else about coaching. Just talk quick to, quickly, yeah. tactically. What is Let's talk about tactically from a standpoint of a top-level team versus a team that's sort of just happy to be there. And this is where, as great as the World Cup is, there can tend to be some kind of stinker games, especially in the group stages and maybe even in those round of 16 games. Because you get those, let's say, Saudi Arabia, Tunisia, um those types of teams where you qualify through your confederation because as much as we want to talk about the World Cup being the best competition in the world, it's really not the best 32 teams. It's the best 10 teams plus, you know, the rest of the world world that we have to get in because FIFA's job isn't really to, you know, cater to the best 32 teams. It's to try to grow the game and... No, that's Euro 2016. Yeah, basically, which is, you know, it's a it's a it's a marketing tool in the sense that even, you know, even clubs like Saudi Arabia or clubs in Africa or clubs in Asia or sorry, national teams in those places where if you just had a competition and said, here are the 32 best teams, they're not going to qualify or they're going to be very hard pressed to qualify. You, You get this sort of different mentality, which is. You're going to see a game in the first group between um, Uruguay and Saudi Arabia. And I assume that game is going to look like every other kind of game like that, which is Uruguay presses for a goal and Saudi Arabia sits back with nine, ten men behind the ball. Now, as the attacking team... How do you approach a game like that tactically? Because we kind of know how you approach a game between two of the top teams. Yeah. You know, it, you're basically, you play your game and you see what happens. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, it's working out your weaknesses, but you play your game. Yeah, but now you're in this situation where it's high pressure and you're a top team and you're playing one of these happy-to-be-here clubs or happy-to-be-here national teams. What's the, going through your mind, you think, as from both sides of this, as the top-level team and as sort of the middling, we're here to try to get our three games and not lose by a whole bunch. I see this as, um, my, my favorite example is um, Argentina-Iceland. This is a great group, Group D, Argentina, Iceland, Croatia, Nigeria. It's a great group because Argentina and Croatia are both, I think they're both good enough for first place. Argentina on paper are better, but Croatia always are somewhat good at tournament, tournaments, right? Croatia is a sort of team who will be a bit more on par with Nigeria and Iceland and probably beat them. Argentina, as you as you said, will probably be one of those teams who have to fight hard against a really deep block team. 
and Iceland being the better quality than Nigeria, I think this is the best example because the out of Argentina, Croatia, right? One of them will finish first, and that one will get to play probably Denmark instead of France. Do you want to play Denmark or France? I want to play Denmark. Um, so Argentina want to win this game, right? And Iceland are really happy to be at the World Cup. Um, so what does the Argentine coach have to do? He has loads of resources at his disposition. This this is really fun because um, what you want to do is... There's, there's two different ways of approaching this. A, you want to play a, a game which is a bit risky, which is um, giving the ball to your opponent a lot, letting them try to play possession. Essentially, what it's about is um, telling your wingers, right, take really heavy touches. Tell, um, let's say it's Argentina, tell, tell Angel Di Maria, right, Angel, um, if you lose the ball, it's not all that bad. And why is that? Well, that's, well, just, just, I think Angel will be very happy to do that, by the way, too. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be hard for him. That's true. If he loses the ball, it's either going to be the left back or the centre back who gets the ball back. And then what you do is you ask your team, right, spread yourselves out wide, force Iceland to build up through the middle. Bad teams, and this is just this is just a fact of life, bad teams are terrible at playing through the middle. Um, because only good teams can play through the middle. Because that requires having a, a, you know, a, a midfield made of steel. Um, and only really good teams have that. So you have to force Iceland to play well through the middle. You allow them to you know, build it up to their midfield. And then when it's in the midfield, you put on the pressure and you try to win the ball back. Because this essentially is all about... The whole, the whole problem with playing against a deep block is that you have too much possession and you're moving the ball about, but you're moving the ball about either on the two, on the two wings or in the first third of their half, right? You know, if you see the, the, the two halves in, in thirds. If you, give, if you get the ball to their midfield, strategically speaking, then you can win the ball in the second third of their half, which gives you a better chance and, you know, less players to beat. Um... That's one approach, but of course it means that, you know, surprise, surprise, if Argentina have a plan, if, if Iceland have a plan, they can actually just play it from the middle, you know, out to the wings and while they score. Um, which I think, I think that was a tactic. I remember Portugal trying to do that against Iceland when they lost against Iceland. Or drew, I think it was lost. Um, but nonetheless, this was, this, was a, this was a problem with that sort of tactic. The other one just being play hard and fast. Um, try to catch them out on through balls. Try to, you know, if they're, if they're playing a low block, then try to catch them out with centers on the ground. Um, you have to play a quantitative game. Um, good teams like Germany, right? They're based on quality chances. Um, they're based on, you know, low quantity, high quality chances. Um, same with Real Madrid. Real Madrid don't play in quantity. They play in, they play in quality. Um, whereas you have teams who play in quantity. I'm a Liverpool fan. I, I, I have a really easy time admitting that we play in quantity. We just create chances and attack. End of story. Um, and Argentina are a team who, realistically, with their players, should be relying on quality chances because they have the players. They have the players to put away quality chances. But against Iceland or a team like that, they would have to play in quantity. That means, um, well, essentially, that just means ask your midfielders if you're playing in four-three-three. Um, ask your midfielders to stick out to their wingers and make sure you have a triangle between fullback, midfielder, and winger so you can move a, the ball about, about with a bit more air and get loads of centers on the ground. Maybe have a number 10 to, you know, on the edge of the box so we can ping in a loose ball. And worst-case scenario, play a 4-4-2, have two strikers, you know, essentially hold back their, their defenders 
so that your two midfielders in the four four two can you know sweep in for some goals. It's a really hard uh, situation for teams, but it's doable. Yeah, and I've seen in in my time watching these World Cup competitions, I've sort of seen the game change, especially from I would say when Italy won, you know, playing basically Italy ball, and you had you had Spain win with what was essentially Barcelona's um, yeah. game plan just, you know, transitioned over to a national team level. And that really only can work when you have the spine of the team really playing together. And I think you've seen that a little bit with that Spanish national team, especially in their glory um, in their glory years, which I talked about with uh, Jose Espinosa you had that spine of that Barcelona team that essentially made, I think, um, Vincente Del Bosque's job a lot easier because he didn't necessarily have to explain to those guys, okay, this is how we're going to play tactically and we have to really go and work through it. Those players just kind of knew what to do, give them sort of a blueprint and a format to do it in, and everyone else sort of plays around it and you have success. Yeah, then you as well, just quickly, that yeah. Spain had extremely intelligent players. Xavi and Iniesta were, you know, Vincente Del Bosque's job was essentially telling everyone else what their job was and having Xavi and Iniesta look at the lineup and then know what to do immediately. Yeah. And that and that's a, a and I think that's where as a national team coach, you just sort of become a little bit more of a man manager and a little bit more of a make sure, you know, you make sure the machine's working well. If you see something off tune, you fix it. And it's a little more offhand, but you're still sort of fine tuning things. And then you had 2014, where I think Germany took that, that Spain blueprint, I think made the play a little more direct. And what you had was a team that was, I think, just incredibly well balanced. And I looked at it as Spain for most of that World Cup in 2010, they played with the ball. And it's not like they blew teams out. They were winning those knockout games 1-0 one, one most of the time because they were facing that low block. And I think what ends up happening over the years now, and I think what you're seeing is a team that teams that are going to have to win this thing are going to be balanced enough where they can play quickly with the ball while sort of being able to set up some sort of high press and force some of these teams back into their own end. I think Germany did that really well against Brazil in that they just shell-shocked them. And at some point, Brazil just lost the will to sort of run back and defend. And Germany's passing was just too good and too precise, which is why I sort of worry about France in this World Cup, because I just don't see the their ability to sort of move the ball quickly. I still think... Deschamps is stuck in sort of let's pass the ball around, let's wait for an opportunity, playing that sort of, you know, Olivier Giroud sits in the middle of the penalty box and heads the ball down. And I think he's having a tough time adapting to what I think the game is starting to go towards, which, again, I think is going to be more complete, more counter, more quick passing in your own half or more quick passing in the other team's half. But um, I was going somewhere with that. Um, Just talk about sort of tactically what you think 
just specifically tactically, it's going to take to win this 2018 World Cup? And then we'll talk about Denmark before we uh, head on out. Um, specifically tactically, I think, it's, it, of course, it's team to team. But um, the whole thing is that the World Cup, as I said, it's all about luck, right? It's all about nailing it on in seven games. So as a coach, your job at the World Cup is to get your players to understand the scope of the importance of what they're doing. The World Cup's only every four years. And considering the you know the length of a player's career, they're only going to get to be able to play maybe two at their peak. It's really, you know, it's a really tough situation. Vincent Company is probably doing his last proper World Cup. Um, and you know, Vincent Company being such a great player for such a long time, it's only his second World Cup and it's probably his last as peak. Like that's when you realise how you know how how few these chances are. You have to get the players to understand the importance, and then uh, do what Joachim Löw did, which is have the faith in them to you know to understand that they are adults and that they, as professional athletes, have to be able to motivate themselves to know that they're the only player if they're starting. They're the only player who can do their job right. They are the player who has been chosen by the coach to do this job, which means they have to do it the best way they can possibly do it. Um, so there's so much more motivation in play when you're a World Cup coach. There is no you know, consistency and whatnot. You have to, of course, you have to be consistent in winning. But this is seven games. This Seven games isn't a consistency. Seven games is just, you know, it's, 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 to a large degree, it's a large piece of luck. I think it was something about Alex Ferguson or another Premier League coach who essentially said, I only judge my team after the first 10 games of the Premier League season. This is not even 10 games, right? This is it's, this is just a team getting to know itself. So make sure your team knows exactly what they're doing on the pitch and then just play audacious. Play, take, take, just really take risks because there's not, without taking risks, especially the big teams who can win the World Cup, right? They're going to be facing low blocks. They're going to be facing teams who play great on counters. Um, somebody's going to play Italy at some point. Sorry, sorry, somebody's going to play Egypt at some point. Um, they, they can play teams who play really well on fast counters and absolute trash everywhere else, um, which means your players have to be up to the up to the job every single minute of the day. So, motivationally speaking, you have to you have to be on your on, on your top game. You have to be absolutely crazy as a manager, right? If your player makes a mistake, then shout at him. So, so just really, just get in into the bottom of the bucket there with your shouting. Um, and if he's doing well, then make him feel like he is, you know, putting the performance of his life, and that he'll just have to be better next week. That this is just his sta- This is the bar now. This is a standard. Um, it's it's there's a there's a huge motivational aspect in play. And aside from that, the only thing I can think of is um, making sure tactically you get it right. Because what from what I know now, because as a coach, right, is that we play in a we play in a season format. Um, where there's seven teams, we play each team two times, so there's 12 games. 12 games is a long enough amount of time to, you know, tweak and play on consistency and stuff like that. Um, seven games isn't. Um, the difference being that in my, if, I was play, if I was a World Cup manager instead of just a season manager, during the season, it's a lot more about what's your instruct, right? what did you see during this game, how can, the, how can the player improve in the next game? At the World Cup is what did you see in the last ten minutes, and how can the player improve in the next ten minutes? Hmm. There's a lot, you know, a lot of shorter time yeah. period. And as as we as I transition a little bit from that, let's talk just about sort of 
Belgium and I, not Belgium, sorry, Denmark. Let's talk about Denmark. We already talked about Belgium. Denmark. Yes. Now, Denmark is not does not have a long and illustrious um, national team history. In fact, they have not. Um, they have been to the round of sixteen um, twice. They won in the quarterfinals once in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah. And it, it they're just it's not a consistent. Um, they're not a consistent national team in that they're there every year. And you kind of put them into a, a few categories. You have the consistent powerhouses who are stable and are there pretty much every year. You would have put Italy in this category until this year. But then you got the teams that seem to be there every year, but they're never really a threat to win the thing. And then you have sort of a team like Denmark who sort of peek in and out of the World Cup. Yeah. And you're not quite sure when Denmark will make it back again. They may not make it back for another 20 years. No. There's a possibility that that happens. So when you're when you're the coach of a team like Denmark, and it's like, okay, this is going to be the one, maybe one moment in our national team history, in our national team's recent history, where we can make a good accounting of ourselves. And in the group that they're in which is a group with France, Australia, and Peru, there's a very good chance that they can get out of that group and get into the round of 16, which I think in this case would be a huge achievement for a country like Denmark. Now, just talk about them, their squad briefly and just sort of what the expectations are and how a team that's sort of in this category where they peek in and out of the World Cup, they're not a consistent entry into it, how you sort of approach these types of um, approach these types of uh, opportunities, let's call it that. Um, Denmark has a specificity. We are we have a very we always every single tournament we go to, we have one good player. In, 20, in 2010, we went to the World Cup because we had Kristen Poulsen. Um, this year, we're going to the World Cup with Christian Eriksen. He's good. He's very good. The problem is, we've never been able to get much out of very good players. Qualifying for the Euros, uh, Eriksen did absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And, you know, the same thing with Euro 2012, with Euro um, 20, 2008, with the, World Cup 2010, with the World Cup 2014 qualifying... We haven't been able to qualify. We didn't qualify for the last two tournaments because we didn't get anything out of Christian Eriksen. And the rest of the team is... Now, today, right now, the team is actually good. If we look at the team, right, we have some actual decent players. Aside from Eriksen, we have Casper Dolberg. We have Victor Fischer. We have Casper uh, Schmeichel. We have... Um, what's his name? That defender for Huddersfield. Zanke Jörgsen. We have a decent base, right? We have a better base, I'd say, than the other... Mediocre, the other mediocre teams at the World Cup. My expectation, personally, is that we top the group. I can see us beating France, and I know exactly why is that, because France do not want to play Argentina. France want to get to the final before they play a good team. Denmark doesn't care, we just want to win games. Um, France has this, you know, France has a, a strange apathy towards mediocre teams. Laurent Blanc, he's a decent manager, but... You remember the the nil the nil nil against Luxembourg, right? Yeah. It's because France are very confused when they play a large, a wide midfield because they like playing Kante, Pogba, 
and sometimes Matuidi together, Pogba and Matuidi are going to go off in their own thing, and that means you only have one midfielder left, um, which leaves you extremely exposed. And if you play a good counter team, which is what Denmark's becoming, if you play a team that has actually been able to harness a good player for the first time in decades, which is what... Um, which is what Olga Haida, our coach, has done with Ericsson recently, then you have an actual chance. I remember, um, I've had to look it up, um, our game in, in 1998 when we made it to the quarterfinals, we were only beat by Brazil 3-2. We were actually decent, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I see us doing okay, but then, you know, then we're going to eventually face Croatia and Argentina in the round 16. If we beat Croatia and Argentina, then make us everyone start courses. But aside from that, round of 16 would be the expectation, but also our ceiling, realistically. Um, I, I think, yeah, the, the, there's a very good chance of getting out of the group. If we fail, it's just, it's 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 not really going to be a disappointment because it's the first World Cup we've been to in eight years. But um, it, it's going to be sad, of course, because we have a good team. Um, yeah, I, I think there's certain expectations, and on a manager on a managerial level. Hugo Haider has one thing in mind. That's get the best thing out of Christian Eriksen. Surround him with the right players and put enough pressure on the opposition to give him room. And and I would say you're, you're probably the first person I've talked to who gives Denmark that sort of chance to beat France. And I'm not sure you're wrong. <laughs> I actually think there's a... I, I think that France can be... Especially under Deschamps, they can be um, very lack. Let's put it lackadaisical. I, it's it's Sunday stroll football. It's you know pass it sideways, try to get it out to the wings, send a long ball for Giroud, la la la, and they can get caught. And they got caught against Colombia in that uh, friendly a couple months ago because they got up two nil and they stopped playing. And that that's sort of a, a typical um, Deschamps deal where they get up 2-0, they play really well for stretches, like otherworldly for, for stretches, and then they just sort of take their foot off the gas and go, all right, we, we've done our job, we can go home now, let's just make sure we don't make any stupid mistakes. The other team comes up and gets pressure, and France fall apart. We've seen it happen. We've also seen France face a low block like they did against Portugal and just have absolutely no idea how to break it down. So I can absolutely see that scenario happening for Denmark. And on that note, Louis, um, just uh, tell the people where they can follow you on Twitter, anything you may be working on in the future, or anything else you'd like to mention before we ride off into the sunset. I mean, um, I have my exam periods coming up, and I'm, I'm going to delete Twitter for the next few months. But um, <laughs> they can always find me on 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 uh, Twitter at uh, PositionEaster2. But um, aside from that, I write regularly for BSU Talk. So. And, I, and I feel honored that in the midst of your sabbatical from um, covering football that you would stop by um, the World Cup project to talk uh, but I thought it was a very fascinating subject, and I thank you for ha- for coming on and taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. I mean, I'm only happy to do it. I love talking about the World Cup, especially. So, for PSG Talk contributor Louis Jacques, this is your World Cup project host, Mark Damon. Au revoir for now.
Thank you for listening to the World Cup Project. Our next episode will feature friend of PSG Talk, Carl Oscar Kallstrom, also known as Everything PSG on Twitter, discussing officiating at the World Cup, alongside his evaluation of Sweden and its chances in the tournament. The theme for the World Cup Project is provided by the Dutch supergroup Orgel Vretten, whose fantastic music you can listen to on iTunes and Spotify. This show was brought to you by PSG Talk, the number one news and opinion site for all things Paris Saint-Germain in English. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for more information on upcoming World Cup Project episodes. And as always, this has been your host, Mark Damon, saying once again, au revoir for now.